Today's scripture reading is John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and they did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast came to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, David. Well, church, good morning. Good to be with you all. Um, joy to be with you in worship. And, and again, can we just express our gratitude to the Lord for the gift of our sisters and brothers from Mid-America. Thank you all so much. Well, as we, as we continue in worship together, I want to pray for our time, uh, for the Lord's blessing upon the teaching of his word. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, you are the giver of every good gift. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of our vocal cords. We thank you for the gift of sound in our ears, sight in our eyes, taste in our tongues, feelings within our hearts. Lord, we ask that in this time that we would also receive from you the gift of your word that is timely and timeless. Lord, may we hear from you afresh. I ask for the power of your spirit to be at work in this time, in this place. And so, Lord, that that the words of my mouth, as they are aligned with your word, would, would have an impact in our lives now and forever. And so, Lord, may we hear from you. May we trust in you. May we be wholly dependent upon you, desperately so, for in you is our only hope in life and in death. And so may this time be honoring to you, edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Jesus turned water into wine. I mean, I was trying to think of my introduction for this sermon. It's like, I I don't think I need to build any tension uh, for this sermon. Jesus turned water into wine. And what's so interesting about this first miracle of Jesus is that it has a wide range of reactions and responses from people both in the church and outside the church. Because on one hand, you have have people who hear this and they're immediately confronted with the implausibility of the divine, of the supernatural of miracles. Miracles don't happen. And so right away, this passage doesn't really jive with a lot of people. But on the other hand, you have uh, maybe another sect of people who have a hard time uh, kind of coming faced with the fact that Jesus in this miracle is condoning the making, the serving, the drinking, and the celebrating of wine, of alcohol. Like, how do you bring these two things together? 
And and, and in very fitting form, it's very fitting to Jesus, because in so many ways, Jesus oftentimes does offend people across the spectrum, across the board. He's an equal opportunity offender in many ways, and that's what we see in this first miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. But as we, as we take a closer look at this story of this first public miracle of Jesus, what I want us to see and what I hope we'll find is that while this is no less than a story of Jesus providing wine for his friends at a party, there is also a great deal of truth and beauty behind this story, that he is doing and declaring something here that goes well beyond miracles and Merlot, if you will. And so what I want us to look at in this story, maybe a familiar story for some of us if we've grown up in the church, but I want us to see here, as we explore this text together, I want to walk through the story, highlight a few things to see who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and how we, as his followers, are called to respond. And as we do that together, I want us to see this one idea, that the very best has arrived in Jesus. The very best has arrived in Jesus. I believe that's what John is trying to show us in the story. It's what Jesus is accomplishing in this miracle, that the very best has arrived in Jesus. Now, if you were with us uh, last week, so we've been in the Gospel of John for a few weeks now. Last week, we saw the calling of the first disciples. Pastor Ben showed us the beauty of this simple phrase, come and see. Come and see. And Jesus calls his first disciples unto himself. And in John 2, we see their first assignment. And what is it? A road trip to a party. And and that may be a crass way of saying it, but it's no less than that. Look with me at John 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, one very remarkable thing that we need to see about Jesus, that we should not gloss over too quickly, that in this story, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, had fun. And that may sound like a very trite, flippant word, but I believe it is appropriate for us to see Jesus as a man who laughed, who smiled, who who enjoyed time with his friends, who experienced the pleasures of life, who celebrated, who partied, who joked around with his buddies. Jesus' presence at the wedding feast in Cana tells us many things, not the least of which is that Jesus is no ascetic killjoy. Jesus has given this divine stamp of approval on celebration and partying to the best and godliest form. So yes, Jesus came and performed a miracle at Cana. We we see his divinity on display in performing this miracle, but church, let us not miss the full humanity of Jesus who came to party with his family and friends in the best of ways. And sometimes that's hard for us to see and to believe about Jesus, especially when the most widely used and widely sold image of Jesus throughout the world is this image. When this is our image of Jesus... The most commonly sold and used image of Jesus, I mean, it's no surprise that we maybe have a hard view and hard understanding that he is a man who celebrated, who laughed and smiled. Who wants to hang out with this guy? You know, it's like, seriously. I mean, not to mention that it's like ethnically incorrect. That's a whole other conversation. But this, this shows us how we do have an impoverished understanding of who Jesus is in his full divinity and his full humanity. And so here's what I want us to do. As we walk through the story, I want us to see Jesus afresh fully in his divinity and his humanity. 
So John records for us that Jesus has come to the wedding at Cana on the third day. Now, that's a very interesting reference. Uh, In the immediate context, it's in reference to the fact that it's the third day after the calling of the first disciples, which is true. That's the immediate context here. But just as there is more than meets the eye to Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, there is often a deeper meaning in the Word of God recorded for us by the biblical authors. And the reference of the third day is no exception here. The third day is actually a biblical theme and reference used throughout the storyline of Scripture. And oftentimes it is a symbol or the the documenting of the emergence of something new. The emergence or the dawning of new life or new revelation. And in the story of Jesus' miracle at Cana, we actually see both of those things. And so just to give you an example, like the first reference of the third day is back in Genesis, the third day of creation. That is the day where life sprouts out of lifeless earth and water. It's the first day of that vegetation comes about in God's created world. On the third day is where trees, bushes, vines, and you guessed it, grapes come about on the third day. So you see what John is doing. John is not just recording interesting facts here. He's showing us the beauty of the full biblical storyline as we already saw in the opening verses, in the beginning was the word, pointing back to Genesis 1. The third day is also referenced in Exodus 19 where God descends on the Mount of Sinai and and reveals his glory to Moses and brings the new revelation of the law, the Ten Commandments, to his people. In the familiar story of Jonah being swallowed by the fish, he is delivered up on the third day. I could go on and on. There's other several examples of the third day, but the point being is that Jesus is accomplishing more than a mere parlor trick at this wedding at Cana. There is something new emerging here because what John is showing us and what Jesus is revealing is that the very best has arrived in Jesus. Now, John also records for us that at the wedding, one of the uh, esteemed guests is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary is there, and it's most likely that she is a close family friend, uh, because in verse 5, we see Mary kind of telling the servants what to do. And so that's usually given, she has a place of authority at the wedding, and so she's able to kind of tell people what to do. So it's very likely she's a good family friend. It's possible that Mary just has enough street cred, like, that's the lady who gave birth in a barn, so just do what she says, okay? And that may be true, but it's likely that Mary has some kind of authority here. But Mary comes to Jesus as the celebration is continuing, and she reveals some startling news. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is a serious moment of panic. And some of you are like, oh, yeah. Uh, But the point being, like, like culturally so. Because in this moment, just to understand the context here, when a, a, a wedding took place, it was the expectation of the bridal party's family to host, to provide food and wine, not just for one day, but for several days, sometimes up to seven days. Like that is a lot of box wine to deliver for friends and family. And the first day, it's, it's very likely that this is the first day of the wedding and the wine has already run out. And so, so they are at risk of experiencing great cultural, relational, societal fallout as a result of running out of wine on the first day. And in, in a very high honor-shame culture, this is a big deal. And so again, it was customary for the family to provide, and they're out of wine the first day. And so if you thought running out of guacamole at your Super Bowl party was a big deal, like th- this, is, this is a significant thing. They have run out of wine. 
And as a, as a side note here, I want to I say just a couple words about wine. It's great. No, just kidding. So what, what I want to say, what I wanna, truly, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, we need to be clear on what the Bible teaches about alcohol. And so we, we, we like teaching through the books of the Bible. We address matters when they come up. And because there are two, typically, there are two extreme views within the church around alcohol. The first is to conclude, as some have attempted to do so, that the wine referenced in Scripture is not alcoholic and that it's really just grape juice, which is strange because grape juice, as we know it, wasn't invented until like the 19th century. And so there is wide scholarly agreement that every reference to wine in the Scriptures is referring to a fermented grape juice drink that possesses alcohol. And so, so when, when we try to remove that from the text, we try to remove a biblical justification of consuming alcohol rightly and properly. Now again, th- this is one of the, the extreme views. The other extreme view is to conclude or to have a naive view of the harmful effects of alcohol in our culture, in our world. Or worse, to conclude that, that drunkenness and excessive consumption of alcohol is not that big of a deal. Scripture is clear on two truths regarding alcohol. It should be seen as a gift from God that we can receive in joy and moderation, not that we must. We can receive with joy and moderation. And the second truth, like most things, it possesses the ability to destroy us. And if we are not on guard against that and aware of that, it will lead to our ruin in many ways. Theologian F.S. Fitzsimmons, which is really hard to say five times, uh, but he puts it this way in the New Bible Dictionary. He says, these two aspects of wine, its uses and its abuses, we need to be clear on both. Its uses and abuses are interwoven into the fabric of the Old Testament so that it may gladden the heart of man, Psalm 104, or cause his mind to err, Isaiah 28. It can be associated with merriment, Ecclesiastes 10, or with anger, Isaiah 5. It can be used to uncover the shame of Noah or in the hands of Melchizedek to honor Abraham. Alcohol is not a substance to be viewed as inherently wicked from top to bottom, but neither, hear me church, neither is it, is it a harmless substance to be consumed without discretion. And, and, and I say this fully recognizing the ways that alcohol has been abused by, by people in our communities, by people in our church, our families, our loved ones. And, and for I know many of you, that's part of your story, the story of a loved one. And if that is your story, we, we want you to know that we love you, and we want to care for you, and we want to provide support and encouragement to you or to a loved one who is struggling with this kind of substance abuse. So please let us know. But we must be clear on what Scripture teaches. So that's my little sidebar on, on alcohol. Uh, sidebar, that's not the right word. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's get back to the text before I say something stupid again. Um, so, so, Mary, so Mary has come to Jesus, revealed that they're out of wine. Oh, I love that this is the one that's recorded for online. Um, so, so Mary's come to Jesus in desperation, hoping that he will respond and do something to come to their family friend's aid as they are risking great public humiliation. And Jesus responds with words that, I'm going to be honest, have confounded me since I first read them as an early Christian. In verse 4, we read these words. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You read that, and maybe you're like me. At face value, it seems like Jesus is just totally disrespecting his mother. It's like referring to her as woman, what does this have to do with me? 
And I, I, I have wrestled with that. If Jesus is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how do we understand what he is saying to his mother in this moment? But again, like most things in Scripture, there is a deeper meaning behind what is happening here. And for, so, for instance, the word woman, it's really a poor translation. It's more of an endearing term, maybe even more like ma'am. Like, that's kind of a more accurate description because it's the same word that Jesus uses to speak to Mary as he is hanging on the cross in John 19, 26. He refers to her as woman in this endearing way. The more problematic phrase is what he says next. What does this have to do with me? That's a little bit more tense. It's a phrase that is akin to saying, hey, we're not on the same page. It's communicating some kind of dissonance or disagreement. But Jesus says this to his mother, again, because he knows that she knows his true identity. He knows that she knows who he is as the son of God. And, and Jesus is trying to communicate and remind his mother that as good as it would be to steward his powers to bless this family in this moment, his time has not yet come. And he must wait for the proper time to fully announce who he is as the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which is why he says, my hour has not yet come. And this is a refrain that is repeated throughout John's gospel. It is always in reference to the crucifixion. The time when Jesus is officially declared and installed as king in that beautiful, scandalous ceremony. But in this moment, when Jesus responds, my time has not yet come, what does this have to do with me? We, we don't see any other interaction after that, and yet Jesus still does what his mother suggested, which is very strange. We don't know exactly kind of what happened, what took place in this moment, but Jesus still responds and does something to the degree of what his mother suggests, but in a way that doesn't compromise his mission. It's not like Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and Mary's like, please. He's like, okay. Like, that's not the interaction. But rather what happens is that Jesus, seeking to be a respectful son to his mother, as well as being submissive to the will of the father, finds a way to accomplish both. So notice, Mary doesn't tell Jesus what to do. He, she doesn't come to him demanding that he act in this way. She doesn't expect him to deviate from the will of his father. So there's really no conflict or opposition between Mary and Jesus. She simply trusts her son, who is her Messiah, mind you, to do what he deems appropriate. Mary brings the information to Jesus and trusts that he will do what is right, that he will act respectfully towards his mother that he will submit to the will of the Father and he will be hospitable towards his friends and family. Which is why after this interaction, John records these timeless words of Mary that all of us should pay heed to in verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is the only command recorded in the scripture of Mary. And isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's a command that we should all listen to. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Mary, the one who is full of grace, as described in Scripture, is fully expecting and trusting Jesus, her Son and Messiah, to do what is right, which is why she calls the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. This is actually a remarkable picture of faith in Mary, not knowing how he's going to do it. Like, I'm not quite sure how he's going to balance all three of these things, respect of me, submitting to the will of the Father, being hospitable to the neighbors and friends and family. How is he going to do it? 
Our family, we've been watching uh, The Chosen recently. And if you, if you have not seen it, I, like, like short of like giving you a pastoral mandate to watch it, I, I recommend it to you. I, we, were, we were slow to the party because I tend to have a little bit of a skepticism around Christian art, and it is remarkable. I just, just commend it to you. But we recently, there you go, amen, there's an amen. But there is, uh, there's a beautiful, we just recently watched the, the episode of Jesus performing the miracle at Cana. And there's this beautiful way in which they depict the interaction between Jesus and Mary, as well as his joyful and celebratory nature. So I want to just show a brief clip of that to give us a little bit of a picture. So let's take a look. Just watch out for the frogs this time. <laughs> oh, sons of Jonah. We were just looking for you. They're dancing to the song of Miriam, and we thought you wouldn't want to miss it. Of course. Let's the three of us show them how it's done, huh? I don't think that's such a good idea. Why? Andrew has four left feet. Four? Why four? When he tries to dance, he looks like a donkey walking on hot coals. <laughs> oh, Andrew, do you deny it? I've never seen a donkey walking on hot coals. Actually, that would be a terrible thing to behold. My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my own mother will join us in the Song of Miriam. They've run out of wine. But it's only the first day. Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left. Why are you telling me this? We can't let the celebration end like this. And Etcher's family humiliated. Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm. Mother, my time has not yet come. So again, I, I know they take creative liberties, obviously, in retelling these stories, but, but I think that just gives us a little bit of a picture of Jesus' posture and tone, this balancing act that he's attempting to play in respecting his mother, submitting to the will of the Father, and being hospitable to his neighbors. And as to be expected, Jesus does all three with excellence. So what does Jesus ask the servants to do? In verse 6 through 8, we read these words. Now, there were six jars, six stone water jars, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Now again, in this story, we, we might just see this as an interesting detail that John gives us. Like, and there were six jars in the corner and Jesus decided to use those. He's a very industrious person. Like that's, that's not what, what John is recording for us. There is a reason why he records that they were six stone jars of purification according to the Jewish rites and ceremonies. These jars were used for the cleansing of utensils uh, that were uh, integral to Jewish practices and services and ceremonies. This, again, is not just a random detail. John is showing us how Jesus has come to be the fulfillment 
of what the Old Testament and the Mosaic law was intended to accomplish, but couldn't because of sinful, broken humanity. This picture of the stone jars used for Jewish purification being the means by which Jesus brings about a new wine is a symbol and a truth that Jesus, in Jesus, the very best has arrived. And if you remember back in chapter 1, we read these words in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, this is not just a random fact. What what we see in this story is that Jesus is saying something about himself as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all the promises of God and the fulfillment of what the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system could never fully accomplish in bringing about the salvation of the world and the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is saying, I am finally here. The very best has arrived in me. And so much like the way that Jesus heals on the Sabbath and angers the Pharisees, he is choosing in this moment to use these, uh, these uh, stone jars used for purification for the purposes of generosity, mercy, and hospitality over and above religious tradition. And, and it's not because Jesus is opposed to religious tradition, but rather to show that he is the better fulfillment of the religious tradition. He's not throwing away the Old Testament. So I, I want to illustrate this. It would be like somebody who has a flashlight and, and, they're, and they're out in the dark and they're trying to find their way. And then all of a sudden, when the sun arises, when the sun rises, there, there's now no longer a need for the flashlight. It's not that you look at it like, this is trash. But it, the point is, is that like, no, the, the beauty of the sun has come to eclipse this flashlight. We don't actually cast it away, as I just did, but the point being is that, oh, the, the, the actual true source of light has come, the better source of light has come, and that is exactly what Jesus is doing in bringing new wine out of these jars of Jewish purification, not pitting them against one another, but showing how he is the fulfillment, because again, church, the very best has arrived in Jesus which is exactly the deeper meaning behind what the master of the banquet declares. This brother who doesn't even fully realize what he is saying is actually proclaiming a beautiful biblical truth of what it means that in Jesus, the very best has arrived. They, they give the, the new wine that Jesus has made. They bring his messianic Merlot you know, to, to the, the master of the banquet. And, and he drinks it, samples it, and then in verse 10 declares these words. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He's basically saying like everybody serves like the Boulevard Smokestack series first. Then you break out the Natty Light because no one can tell the difference at that point. That's kind of what he's saying in kind of modern terms. But, but like we've seen several times already, what is being declared here is a truth that is pointing to an even greater truth. It is a way of saying that the very best has arrived in Jesus. And what happens as a result of this first miracle of Jesus? A miracle, by the way, that was only revealed to his disciples and the lowest class of people at the wedding, the servants, which is another beautiful kingdom principle and truth that we don't have time to get into here. But what happens after Jesus reveals this miracle to his disciples and to the servants? We read in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. When we step back and look at the beauty and the fullness and the richness of this story, the logical conclusion is belief in Jesus. Jesus. 
is to see that in Jesus, the very best has arrived because the very best joy and life and rescue has come in the dawning of Jesus, the Messiah, who has come to bring the better life, the better joy, the better rescue. And so church, here is my question for us to consider and ponder. What happens when the wine runs out? As we think about our lives, I'm not just talking about the wedding at Canaan, I'm not just talking about literally when the wine runs out, but when we think about our lives, what do we do when the wine runs out? When whatever the thing is that we have turned to for joy, for escape, for contentment, for purpose, for identity, what happens when it's gone and dried up? Because every earthly purchase, pleasure, and pursuit has diminishing returns to it because God has created you and me with divine taste buds, so to speak. That our satisfaction and our satiation for joy and contentment is never found unless it is found in Christ. As St. Augustine so powerfully and beautifully declared, a temporal object is valued more before it is possessed and then begins to prove worthless the moment we attain it since it does not satisfy the soul. That is a truth that is timeless When the wine runs out, we must turn to the one who brings the very best joy and the very best life. What do we do when the wine runs out? Instead of desperately scraping at the bottom of an empty wine barrel, looking for nothing but empty promises, what we see in this story is that we need to turn and see that the very best has arrived in Jesus. Amen? The very best has arrived in Jesus, and that is precisely what John is showing us in this story. The one we find celebrating at the wedding has come to be the better wine, has come to be the better joy, and to be the better feast. The one we find at Cana, the one who's repurposing these Jewish stones of purification, has come to be the one who is the better for purification, who brings a better cleansing, who brings a better life. And when we see that the very best joy and that the very best life is brought to us in Jesus, then it is only natural for us to respond in obedience to the words that Mary declared, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) When this is who Jesus is, when we see and behold that he has brought a better joy in life to us, a better rescue, a better purification, we respond in doing whatever he tells us, not out of religious obligation, but out of a joyful adoration in response to who he is and what he has done. Because church, and and hear hear me clearly on this, it is no chore to do whatever you are told by the one who has come to do whatever it takes to bring us joy in life abundantly, even when it means his life for ours. I'm gonna say that one more time. It is no chore to do whatever we are told by the one who has come to do whatever it takes to bring us joy and life abundantly, even when it means his life for ours. For what we behold in this great story at Cana is that the very best has arrived in Jesus. Yes, it is a display of his glory. Yes, it is a display that he is the Messiah. Yes, it is a display of his hospitality towards his friends, but it is an even fuller picture to show that the very best has come in the person of Jesus. For Jesus is the better wine who gladdens the heart of humanity. Jesus is the better bridegroom who pledges his life to us. Jesus is the better wedding feast who rejoices over his beloved whom he died for. Jesus is the better jar of purification who brings for us a cleansing of our sins and our shame once and for all. And church, hear me, Jesus is the better third day. 
He is the better third day of creation who brings about a new creation life, one that is for all people through his defeat of death when he walked out of the grave on that glorious third day. Amen? When we see the truth that the very best has arrived in Jesus, that he is the better wine, the better celebration, the better wedding feast, the better bridegroom, the better purification, and the better third day, we know who to turn to when the wine runs out. We must go to the one who is the better wine, who is the better wedding feast, the better bridegroom, because church, the very best has arrived in Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Father in heaven, I I stand in this moment thankful for the gift of your son, for the gift of the one who has come to gladden the heart of all broken, sinful humanity, to be the one who brings a better wine of celebration, the one who brings a better celebration and joy as, as the wedding feast, the one we look forward to where heaven and earth are made one. Lord, I ask that in this moment that you would, by the power of your Spirit, awaken us to see the empty barrels that we are scraping our fingers against, hoping for some kind of contentment and satisfaction, rescue and salvation. And Lord, would you show a severe mercy to us in revealing the hollowness of the things that we pursue apart from you, so that we might see and behold Jesus the one who has brought the very best of life, of joy, and of rescue. And so, Lord, would you work through our idols? Would you work through the gods that we worship? Would you work through our addictions and the things that we turn to so that when the wine runs out, we might find you as the one who brings a better life, a better joy, a better rescue? Would you do this, Lord, for the good of your church, for the good of those who don't know you, for the glory of your name? and for the advancement of the gospel that is the good news for all. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.